This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on navigating microaggressions at work. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Lori Marcus, who is a corporate board director, executive coach, Wharton School alumna, and founding member of the Band of Sisters. Um, she's also been at, uh, was previously at PepsiCo for more than 24 years in multiple roles, including being senior vice president of marketing activation. After PepsiCo, she served in a number of executive level leadership roles at a number of different um, companies, including the Children's Place Retail Stores, Kirk Green Mountain, and Peloton Interactive. Lori presently sits on the boards of Fresh Del Monte Produce and 24-Hour Fitness. And as a member of the Band of Sisters, she recently co-wrote a book titled, You Should Smile More, How to Dismantle Gender Bias in the Workplace. And I'm super excited to, to learn more about that book today. We also have joining us Dr. David Rivera, who is a counseling psychologist by training and an associate professor of counselor education at Queens College, City University of New York. His research focuses on cultural competency development in issues impacting the marginalization and well-being of people of color and oppressed sexual orientation and gender identity groups with a focus on microaggressions. David's practical work includes consultations and trainings on diversity, equity, inclusion issues. He also recently co-edited a book entitled Affirming LGBTQ Plus Students in Higher Education. So I'm really excited to, to be with you all in conversation here today because we definitely have um, a lot of this conversation around navigating microaggressions at work. It's, it's certainly applicable to uh, corporate workplaces, to nonprofit workplaces, to you know, mm-hmm. uh, other types of workplaces, governmental agencies, but it's also applicable to the education space where I know I spend a lot of time in. David, you do as well, and Lori, you uh, are a wonderful alum of, alumna of our school, so you definitely probably have some experiences to share with respect to education as well. So I, I imagine this is going to be a very robust conversation, and I'm so grateful to, to both of you for your willingness to be here today. So um, concepts, right? I'm an academic. <laughs> and so I always believe it's important uh, to help people understand what we're talking about before we deep dive. And so I, I promised that we were going to talk about microaggressions at work today. Um, and so I want to start us off by talking about what microaggressions are and why they matter. So David, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you've certainly written um, a great deal on this topic. Can you share with us some of your insights on what we mean when we're talking about microaggressions and, and why is it important to be having this conversation? Great. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Stephanie. And I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson and then I'll get into the definition. But I want people to realize that the term has been around since the 1970s. Um, a Black psychiatrist by the name of Chester Pierce, who passed away recently um, at Harvard, um, was the first person to coin the term microaggressions. And they did so in their investigation of um, primetime TV commercials in the 70s. So they did a content analysis for how Black people were depicted in those commercials. 
And what they found was not surprising. And actually, I want to replicate this at some point because I find I'll, I'll probably find very similar results. I think things might have shifted. But what they found is that Black folks were, number one, really weren't even portrayed uh, very frequently. So just representation wasn't there. Mm-hmm. When they were represented, they were often represented in as a secondary, tertiary background character, um, often for comic relief or somebody who was a caretaker or a service worker. Um, but really not, nothing central. So they didn't find any central characters. And if there were, there were just blatant stereotypes that were kind of forming those narratives. And so I think that um, that kind of laid the ground for what was to come several decades later. You know, the field of education picked it up before the field of psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that we define it in our work, and I've been working with Daryl Wing Su at uh, Columbia. He was my mentor since 2006 when we first started doing a lot of the psychological studies on, on microaggressions. And so we define them as <clears throat> brief and commonplace verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities that communicate hostility, derogation, some kind of negative slights or insults towards um, anybody of a marginalized or oppressed background. Mm-hmm. Some things to keep in mind is that they can be intentional or unintentional. We often find that people will say that they were unintending to act that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, actors of microaggressions are often unaware that they're even engaging in these communications. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm finding with more and more education, um, people are, honestly, really nobody should not know what they are. They're they're in every media you can think of, magazines, Mm -hmm. sitcoms on TV, have microaggression narratives uh, interplayed through them, NPR, anything you turn on, you're going to probably see the term. Uh, What... Why they're important is that they, they, they show up in every context, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about education, many examples, workplace, many examples, healthcare, criminal justice. Every main system in this country mm-hmm. has microaggressions embedded in it because mm-hmm. they were founded on systemic oppression, right? And so that inevitably is going to happen. A couple of defining characteristics of microaggressions is that they happen so frequently as because what instigates it is a colliding of worldviews, right? Every one of us has our unique Um, kind of lens in terms of how we understand and interact with the world around us. Mm -hmm. Even if you come from the same family, you're going to have a different worldview inevitably, right? And so microaggression, that kind of sets the stage for microaggressions to happen, where we're having different realities regarding our culture, how we understand the world around us, and those often collide, right? And we often get invalidating messages, insulting messages because of those collisions. There's also an invisibility of unintentional bias. This is Mm -hmm. becoming more clear, Mm -hmm. but Historically, unintentional bias was played down, and that had to do with some of the harm that initial definitions of uh, discrimination and bias, how they were initially studied earlier in the 1900s, where intention was a big part of it. We kind of removed that. We're more concerned with impact because there's also perceived minimal impact with microaggressions. Thinking about one microaggressive encounter, that's not going to lead to the compromises we're finding in, in health, you know, the, the lack of access to employment opportunities, you know, the lack of access to just uh, the real resources that people need to thrive mm-hmm. and to, to exist. And then you kind of juxtapose the catch-22 of responding, right? It's kind of you, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you respond, you're often labeled the wave maker, especially in a uh, workplace situation, not a team player, a complainer. And if you don't respond, you're forced to then internalize that those messages even more, which then just compound each other to create a lot of those disparities that we're finding across all of these institutions. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Thank you so much for giving us definitely that the, the history mm-hmm. behind this topic. And I would say, you know, it's always important to, to step back and understand 
from a, you know, a, a theoretical perspective, how they emerge, why they emerge and, and what they do. Lori, can you share with us some of your thoughts on microaggressions? I would love if you, you know, you, you have a wealth of, of, of yeah. experience as, as a corporate leader, um, yeah. certainly in a number of different organizations. I'm curious to know a little bit more about how you've seen these show up, whether mm-hmm. from your own experience or somebody else's experience, but what does this actually look like on the ground? Yeah. So I know this is a podcast, it's an audio medium. So people can't see that as David was talking, I think I took three pages of notes. Like I was writing so much so quickly. And I kept thinking, oh gosh, I wish I talked to David before we wrote the book. Like it would be, it would be a really easy way of putting some definitions in upfront versus things that we gathered from a lot of um, places. And there's also a lot of things that David said. The other thing you can't tell because it's an audio medium is a couple of times when David was talking, I actually started to tear up a little bit because it's interesting to hear an academic sort of say so succinctly and so professionally things that I've experienced over you know a 30 plus year career as an operating executive, now as a board director and an executive coach. It's just interesting to hear someone say it in such a sort of a factual way and, you know, sort of give language around it. So thank you for that, David. It's actually really um, helpful. A couple of things I just want to talk about. So one is um, we talk a lot about, and we have, again, the six of us who wrote the book, five of us are marketers by background. And Mm -hmm. so words and language are very important to us, storytelling. So we talked a lot about the word. Is it microaggressions? We actually, I don't know that we coined a term, but we use a term called micro moments. Mm -hmm. Some people call them accidental sexism. And part of that is because we started from a place of assume positive intent, Mm -hmm. assume it's unconscious bias. And that's really for the purposes of our work because we thought, and I don't have any statistics on what percent of the time it is unconscious versus maybe it isn't, but we thought for the purposes of our work and trying to bring men into the conversation, bring leaders into the conversation, it would be most productive if we started with the assumption that most of it was unconscious. And people, let's assume that Uh, white men in their 50s who are running corporate America aren't waking up in the morning saying, I'm going to ask all the women to plan the parties and take the notes. And that's how I'll keep women down. I'm going to call women girls in the workplace. Like we just made the assumption that they are, that that most of this is unconscious. And so, like I said, so we call them um, micro moments, but very much fits into a lot of things that David was saying. The part that made me tear up a little bit as David was talking was this notion of they happen so frequently. And somebody asked me recently, the title of the book is You Should Smile More, right? And that's all women. When you say that women, they just smile when they say it because what they say under their breath is, if I had a dollar for every time I was told to smile more, I wouldn't need to be working. And when you say the the title of the book to, you know, cisgender white men and run corporate America, they say things like people should smile more. That's a great idea. And it's just, again, they've never been told to smile more. So again, they're not waking up in the morning telling women to smile more or saying lazy language things like she doesn't have gravitas or she's too emotional. They're not saying that to hold women back, but I'll just finish with this one thought, which is 
Somebody asked me recently as part of the book launch, they said, well, how often do most women, women of color, how often do they experience a microaggression at work? Is it like, is it once a week? Is it once a month? And I literally like almost did a spit take because I was like, I think you should just be asking like how many times in a one hour Zoom call or a one hour meeting mm-hmm. does somebody experience this? And again, something that David said that I really want to talk about is they're invisible because they're so small mm-hmm. and they happen so frequently. And just the, our thesis on this is one at a time if you bring them up, you sound like an idiot because they're so small one at a time, right? Mm-hmm. What well, you know, I, why was I called a, you know, a girl versus a woman or why am I asked to plan the parties or why wasn't I offered a promotion just because they knew I was married to, you know, a man who has a job in New York. And so they assumed I wouldn't relocate like one by one. They don't sound like anything, but just over time, they just add up. And what happens, at least in the workplace, which is really where our experiences and where all of our primary research was done, is one by one, they don't seem like a big deal. But over time, they just exhaust women. And at a certain point, you just can't help but disengage because it's so exhausting. And worse yet, you can become marginalized. Because when someone says, did you meet the new girl in accounting? You don't automatically think, I bet that girl will be the CEO one day. So it's yeah. a combination of they add up little by little. They almost seem too small to talk about, but the collection of them is just exhausting. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you both said that, you know, sh- struck a chord of me in so many ways. Um so when I think about this idea of you should smile more, I, I've been told that so many times and, you know, I'm a black African-American. And so I never know, you know, mm-hmm. is that, are they, am I looking like the, the bossy woman or am I looking like the angry right. black? I don't know what it is, but I know I've been told it so much so that last year um, we were still wearing masks in the classroom. Uh-huh. I started off on the first day of class and I said, I promise you I'm smiling at you all. And I couldn't help but say it. And then after I said that, I said, gosh, it's so deeply ingrained in me that I'm supposed to be smiling right now that I told the students, I promise you I'm smiling right now. You just can't see my smile because I have a mask on and that I was worried about it, right? Um, As another example, I think about uh, just to sort of get more examples of like, what are these small things Mm -hmm. that seem like they're nothing until you realize they have people, certain people, especially from marginalized communities have been said, told these things so often, and it makes them feel smaller, um, articulate. That is a hard word, right? And I think for me is, um, I went from being very angry when people called me articulate to saying, well, of course I'm articulate. I'm like the professor, I should be articulate, but it's the fact that people are surprised that I'm articulate. Um, I don't know why they're surprised sometimes. And, and, you know, you think about again, my minority race as a black person, we were depicted as David just talked to us about this as inarticulate. So if someone Mm -hmm. says, wow, you're so articulate, it's sort of like, oh, so I'm not supposed to be 
right? So these are the things that it's not that it was mm-hmm. just I was just told that once. It was that it happened multiple times. Yes. And to your point, Lori, around micro moments, we I recently wrote a paper in the last year with some colleagues of mine, and we wanted to theorize this idea of relational fumbles. Um, and what a really, you know, with this idea that there's sometimes these micro moments, but we wanted to talk about this idea of sometimes people are saying these things because they're honestly trying to connect. Mm-hmm. The motive is I want to connect with you, David. I want to connect with you, Lori. So I'm going to say this thing and it's a fumble, right? Mm-hmm. It is like they totally blew that. And so in this paper, we predict what turns that around and, and it creates like an upward spiral of like positive connection. Mm-hmm. And when is that turned into like a downward spiral of, of negativity? So I think this idea is that yes. whether the micro moment, it was unintentionally terrible or, 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 you know, intentionally terrible or unintentionally terrible or good or bad. These seemingly micro moments of interactions that we're having with people um, do affect us and mm-hmm. they, affect our relationships. And if we're affecting relationships, we're affecting the ways in which we work together. Um, so, so definitely, I just wanted to put that out there because that's what I was thinking, but I didn't know, uh, David, if you, you certainly listened to Lori share some of her thoughts and, and me think as well about some of what you both shared. Did anything come up for you as we were both talking? Just so many. And again, I was also getting a little emotional hearing the story, uh, Lori, of just, and, and also Stephanie, of what you all have had to go through. Um, because these are stories that need to be told. As Lori was saying, when you talk about one instance of a microaggression, it can sometimes sound like, why are you complaining about someone touching your hair? Well, if you're a Black woman, that's going to carry significant impact in terms of the meaning behind that interaction. And then the idea that someone can just invade someone's personal space when, quite honestly, normative normative space in in American culture is like, you put your arms out, and, and that's what we are comfortable with. We're not a collectivistic culture with that is used to being up close. However, people mm-hmm. feel compelled to break those socially normed ways of being, and then they end up being microaggressive in a way, right? And so just so many of these 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 stories, they need to be told because like like Lori was saying, it's the accumulation, right? It's it's that these are happening multiple times, sometimes within one minute. Additionally, you don't even need somebody else to be around to trigger a microaggression because there's so many embedded in the environments that we navigate on a regular basis. As I was taking my dog to get groomed in between meetings just now, I was counting the microaggressions that I saw as either something directed towards me or vicariously. And there were like 10 different microaggressive events that I saw environmentally or interpersonally within a 10-minute walk from my apartment here in Brooklyn. Wow, that is incredible. And so once you get knowledge... Yeah. You you then you then become the kind of sponge of vicarious microaggressions. Yes. So they don't even have to be directed towards you to have some kind of negative mental health or wellness impact. Yeah, yeah. Lori, would you like to? Yeah, so Stephanie, again, when you were talking, <laughs> you, you sparked so many things for me. So one of the things it's interesting we did. So there's six of us who wrote this book. Five of the women are white women. You know, different. You know, we like to think we're different. You know, married, not women, mothers, stepmothers you know, aunt, gay, straight, Jewish, Christian, one of the women is a, is a woman of color. And so when we went out and we did um, hundreds of, of interviews, qualitative interviews to figure out, especially if these micro moments, mm-hmm. if they resonated with younger people, we knew they resonated with people of, you know, our generation, but we wanted to see, okay, women that are 25, 30, 35, 40 in the workplace today, 
do these things, A, do they resonate with them? But also because our book is so much about a practical guide for women, for allies and for bosses, we also wanted to cheat and say, okay, what do you, what do you do when you're asked to take the notes? You know, what do you do when this happens, both as a woman sitting in the room as an ally? So one of the, just the interesting stories that came up was Mitzi, one of my co-authors, when she interviewed a number of friends of hers who are women of color, and when they saw the title of the book, their reaction was, they said, oh, I didn't know white women got told that as well. Wow. <laughs> and they thought it was just something that happened to Black women. Doesn't make it any easier. But, you know, what I've always been taught is some of the micro moments or microaggressions that white women face, you multiply them times 10 or 100. And that's the intensity by which women of color face those. So yeah. they, they may have additional ones, like the thing you said about being articulate, but some of the same ones that, um, that white women face in terms of feeling like another, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. other, uh, you know, imagine if you will, right. That you really are, you know, the only woman of color in a room, in a classroom, in a meeting, et cetera. So I think that was interesting. And something else that you sparked this, I cried a little bit when you said this about being called articulate again, especially ironic because you're a professor. right? right? <laughs> and, um, And one of the things in terms of like practical realities for people, part of what we've tried to help people understand is, again, it's not about cancel culture. It's not about calling people out. We spend a lot of time really trying to bring men, bring leaders into the conversation. So not about calling you out, but rather inviting you in. But one of the things we say, just a general rule of thumb is what you're about to say to a black woman, would you say it to a white man? Mm -hmm. Right. And, and if you're just like, if it's a linguistics class, for example, and so one of the things you say about people is how articulate they are. And you say it for white men, you say it for straight men, you say it for black men, you say it for, you know, white women, black women, then, then knock yourself out, say it. Mm-hmm. But if it's just a thing that you're saying for people of color, maybe think twice about that. So one like general, when people say like, give me like a life hack, one general rule is instead of othering people, think about, would you say that to everyone? So you're at a weekend work retreat. Everyone has to work the weekends. You're just about to ask the woman on your team who's watching her kids. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're then going to ask the man who's watching your kids this weekend, go go for it. Right. But if it was just one of those things that you were going to ask the woman and you're kind of othering her in the process. Yeah maybe think twice before you say that. So just a follow-up question, Lori, because I can, I can imagine, again, we, you, your, your resume is um, extensive and your accomplishments are equally impressive. And so are those of the other C-suite level women um, who constitute the, the band of sisters who wrote this book. You should smile more. Um, so I can imagine that someone might say, well, that's interesting. Of all the topics that they could choose to write a book about, why did they choose to tackle the topic of gender bias and microaggressions in the workplace? Because it seems to me like they might have lots of other things to say. So so why did you? Why did you, the, the six of you decide to band together as the band yeah. and, and, and write this particular book on this particular topic? Yeah. So so thank you for that question. So the real story is like, we had no intention of writing a book or speaking or anything at all. 
we had worked together, um, you know, years ago at PepsiCo, we had all kept in touch in various ways. And then we were at a dinner back in 2019 before masks, before COVID, before any of that, just a bunch of people breathing on each other at a table, right? (laughs) And actually, as we were talking and sharing some stories about, you know, things that used to drive us crazy. I mean, PepsiCo was an amazing place to work, but everyone has stories about things that, you know, kind of drove you crazy, PepsiCo and then, you know, subsequent things. And as we started to laugh and tell some of these stories, they were never the big things. I mean, they were never the things like, remember how annoying it was when they used to move up the date of strategic planning and you have to work all weekend. That's not the stuff that people remember that drove them crazy. It was the little things Mm -hmm. that we started talking about. And we got to this realization, just talking about it very organically that, oh no, like these things that you know, 30 years ago, when I was a founding member of the Women's Resource Network back in 1992, you just assumed that you'd work on these things then, and then they just wouldn't exist anymore. And the analogy I always use is like seatbelts. Like we used to not wear seatbelts. Then there was this big campaign and we yelled at our parents to buckle up, whatever. And now Mm -hmm. we get in the car and we all put seatbelts on. You know, we get in the car, we don't throw our litter out the window anymore. It's not, you know, we just don't do that anymore. There's a lot of things that you just assume like you'll do the work and then you won't talk about them. There'll be new issues to work on. And I think the 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 aha for us was, oh my gosh, we're still talking about these things 30 years later. They're mm-hmm. more nuanced. No one's asking a vice president level woman to, you know, hey, sweetie, can you get me a cup of coffee, right? They're right. much more nuanced. They're much more subtle. Some would say, because of that, they're actually harder to deal with. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question more directly, we just realized that these things were still going on. We experienced them in our post-PepsiCo careers as operating executives. And now as, you know, C-suite executive, board directors, executive coaches, we were still experiencing them. But I think the real aha, Stephanie, was when I started to realize, you know, I have two daughters that are in their 20s and they're still experiencing them. As I interviewed their peers and their friends for the book, they're still experiencing these moments. And so the long answer to your question is at that point, we just realized, you know what, it's not funny to tell stories about things that happened Um, We need to use our voice, our power, our position to actually try and accelerate change. Well, I'm so happy you all did. I think it's so (laughs) powerful. And I think as much as, you know, I find it, you know, hard and and difficult, um, you know, I always think about people who are coming up behind me, including my students, who they don't know that this is happening to everyone else mm-hmm. that's been going on for like 30, 40 years, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's helpful. It normalizes it in a validates that this happens. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't normalize it in terms of we accept that these things should happen, mm-hmm. but it helps mm-hmm. people understand that this is a, a challenge and a problem that, that we need to begin to address. David, I want to come to you because you definitely in, in your research and in, in your books, you cover a lot of different groups and, and certainly we've already been covering some of them now. We've been talking about people of color and different racial ethnic groups and how they face these. And, and Lori, you've been also including, you know, 
women, but also intersections of, of mm-hmm. women and of color, black women versus white women. Uh, David, you also have considerable insights on LGBTQ plus um, workers and students. And, and I would like to make sure that we bring their voices into this conversation as well. As um, So when you begin to think about the marginalization, well-being of, of people who are from, who identify as LGBTQ plus, and you're listening to some of what we've um, been sharing, what Lori has shared, uh, what resonates with you or, or where are the points of departure when you consider the, these, this diverse population of people as well? So much resonates to me. And so I identify as a gay man, which mm-hmm. is part of my motivation to, to do work in that area. Um, and I can share numerous stories about the microaggressions I've experienced in the workplace. Thankfully, I've worked at a number of universities and colleges, so I'm not outing anybody. But mm-hmm. I once received an invitation from a college president for a reception that was addressed to Dr. and Mrs. Rivera. Uh-huh. Just embedded in those three words and that ampersand, right, mm-hmm. are many multi- multiple microaggressions, right? There's, and our microaggressions are based off of assumptions and stereotypes that we internalize. So there's a connection between the implicit biases that we develop mm-hmm. and then how those manifest via microaggressions. But those all stem from the systems of oppression that are still very well alive and intact, right? Mm-hmm. And so as long as those are alive and intact and are not changed, we're going to continue to see microaggressions proliferate and become more nuanced, just as Lori was talking about. Um, but embedded in that, Mr. and Mrs., uh, Dr. and Mrs. Rivera, number one, why can't, if I'm partnered, why can't they be a doctor as well, right? right. So there's a gendered right. microaggression by assuming that my wife is a, is heterosexual or is a, is, is not a doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that I'm heterosexual, so there's often, for, for queer uh, people, there's often an assumption of heterosexuality, heteronormative mm-hmm. norms. Yeah. And they appear in many ways. It doesn't even just have to be about my sexual orientation by itself. We can even think about gendered restrooms. Like that's very heteronormative as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of these heteronormativity that we find in the workplace gets absorbed by people that are LGBTQ plus, yeah. right? And, and that sets a, sends a message. So that, that president welcome letter, do you think that I felt included and like I felt like I belonged there? Hell no. I did not feel included or like I belonged there. It pissed me off. It yeah. also... It insulted me because they hired me specifically for microaggression work. And then I was treated with the microaggression in the very Absolutely. same breath. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of similarities um, we're going to yeah. find. I think it's just what, what the, the differences we're going to see are based off of whatever those, mm-hmm. those norm stereotypes are about people. Going back to mm-hmm. um, the art, your articulate um, comment, that microaggression, mm-hmm. right? When we did our initial um, um, qualitative studies on microaggressions, we found that that Black folks and Latinx folks um, have their intelligence described more lowly. Yeah. Right? So that's the main stereotype, one of the main eight stereotypes for, for Black folks and for Latinx folks. And so that gets translated into you're so articulate or yeah, this, this expectation that, oh, you're producing something that I had zero expectation for you producing because of this very strong stereotype that the entire society supports. Okay. It's infuriating, but it's validating. That's you know, I think that's that's so important. So, so definitely, you've already started to show with us, share with us some of the uh, evidence from your own research and in in those w- of the people with whom you work on this topic. I'm curious to understand more about if you have any evidence around. We've been saying it happens all the time, like prevalence. I think we've been trying to make a case for the fact that it tends to happen to people who are from historically marginalized groups relative to those who aren't, but just some more uh, data that you'd be willing to share that helps people to understand the importance of this topic. 
One piece of data, and this is from my very unique experience of being an identified expert in microaggression, is I'm often called upon to advise microaggression research projects or to peer review nearly every article written on microaggressions. And I've gotten the span. Like there have been some people that have attempted to do vegan microaggressions and some other classes that really are not the social classes that we think about when we're conceptualizing these issues. And I don't want to downplay that by any means, mm. but it's not the same kind of a Mm-hmm. effect. But even in those studies, I've yet to come across a study published or unpublished that doesn't show one, that these occur frequently. Mm-hmm. And number two, if there's an, if it's an impact study, that there's some kind of detrimental impact on education, mm-hmm. on wellness, mm-hmm. on um, just attaining life's um, pleasures that we need to thrive. And so just personally, I've yet to come across anything that counters, anything empirical that counters the idea mm-hmm. that microaggressions are extremely prevalent and experienced um, on a regular basis by people. Mm-hmm. And the studies that utilize some of the, um, the, 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 the tools to measure microaggressions, mm-hmm. um, those also find that the more that one reports, um, uh, the more microaggressions one reports experiencing in their daily life, the worse their um, living outcomes are. I even used a global um, rating for health, um, which is just a very, it's one statement. It's used very commonly in public health research. It basically just says, how do you, how well do you feel? And then you just kind of rate it. And that's been tied to mortality because we actually know our bodies pretty well as people, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And is even finding that um, the more microaggressions you encounter, the less is your rating on global health. Yeah. So your self-report. And so I've just yet to come across something that that legitimately counters the the Mm -hmm. microaggression experience. So, Lori, in your book, I love your book for um, all of the wonderful stories that you include in there. Mm -hmm. And um, two of my favorites are there's one story. Susan, will you take notes? And and you've mentioned this a couple of times. So I would potentially want to hear a little bit more about it. And. Great idea, Greg. <laughs> so can you just help this come alive a little bit more with tell us a little bit, summarize the Susan Will You Take Notes yeah. story and then the great idea, Greg story? Yes. So one thing that I, I will say before I jump in and answer your question is, again, we're marketers by training. So part of what we tried to do was give language to these things. Um, there's like, We also use a lot of illustrations. We And then when we speak, we try and bring some humor mm-hmm. to a very serious topic, right? So again, part of our overall message of inviting people in. And part of what we found ourselves doing, and I'll use great idea, Greg, when I do this, is when we see someone doing it to someone else, it's a little bit like the Jerry Seinfeld close talker thing. It's mm-hmm. just, I mean, language, when you name things, it's a shortcut. So sometimes people say like, oh, she just great idea, Greg, do you? And we know exactly what that means by that. Or when you know someone's asking a woman to do administrative things, they'll say, oh, you just did a Susan, will you take the notes? And so we found ourselves, even within our little groups, myself and my my family, my husband, will mm-hmm. actually start using this as language, which I love that. So love the it. two examples that you um, that you talked about, one is, you know, Susan, will you take the notes? And that's all about, and there's research that confirms this, that women get asked to do um, a lot of the quote unquote housework mm-hmm. in the workplace. So it could be ordering flowers for secretary's day, you know, women getting asked to serve on culture task forces while men might get asked to serve on the M&A task forces. And then, of course, um, you know, Susan, will you take the notes? The example there is you're in a meeting and, you know, women get asked to take the notes. And it's not because it's 1972 and women have neater handwriting, right? We're all doing it digitally. Right. 
So interestingly, when we did the research with the younger women, what this was a good insight for me is what they found was at the beginning, and I see this with my 25-year-old, sometimes the way you get invited to a meeting when you're super junior is you're invited to take the notes. Nothing wrong with that. I would say, take the access, get yourself in the meeting with the senior people, you'll learn, et cetera. But they said it never, you sort of miss the moment where all of a sudden you're 42 and you're a senior director and you're not junior anymore. And yet people are still asking you to do these relatively junior tasks. So that's, Susan, will you take the notes? And it's funny when we say this to people that like, if I said, they'll say like, you should name, you should rename the chapter. Stephanie, will you take the notes? Yeah. When you're talking to Jane. She'll say, you should name it Jane. Will you take the notes? Because all women have experienced this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's Susan, will you take the notes? really about sort of, um, you know, kind of the housework that is underrepresented and is not the kind of thing nobody gets promoted Mm -hmm. because they were on a, you know, they sort of plan the parties. Um, And then the second one, great idea, Greg, is all around. I'm sure we've all experienced it, that thing where you say something, you say it again, and you're just getting talked over and nobody's hearing you. And then, you know, typically like a you know, a white man will say the same thing. And they're like, great idea, Greg. (laughs) Wait a minute. I just said that. And it's this notion where if you think about what drives people feeling a sense of belonging is they feel heard, they feel included. And this is the exact opposite of that, where people feel like they have insightful things to say, they're trying to speak up, and yet they just, no one hears it until someone in the majority uh, says the same thing. So that's great idea, Greg. I love both of those. I, and I purposely chose those because those are probably the two that I deal with <laughs> most frequently, uh, you know, in, in all different types of, of, of context. David, yeah. interested, you know, you, many of our, our listeners, um, and certainly the population that I, I spend a lot of time with their, their students, undergraduate or graduate students, or people who work in higher education, stories, insights, examples of microaggression that perhaps, for example, an LGBTQ plus student has faced in, in, in our set, our educational settings that might resonate with our, our listeners? Yeah, definitely. I have a lot to share. Um, uh, primary population of students I work with at CUNY are LGBTQ plus identified. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them are students of color. Uh, many of them are first generation going college students. And many of them are coming from working class backgrounds. Many of them are recent immigrants. So you can see the number of layers of potential oppressive identities that can make them more of a target for microaggressions. For my trans and non-binary students in particular, I find that they bear the brunt of the majority of microaggressions Mm -hmm. that probably anybody at the institution is going to experience. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to be, you know, trans and non-binary folks tend to be some of the most targeted people for hate crimes, right? And have low, low life expectancies as well because of all of the oppressions that they endure over their life. But some very common things, you know, whenever I do training on microaggressions specific to gender identity, one of the questions I ask first is, raise your hand if you have the ability to do so, um, if you ever are concerned with finding somewhere safe and accessible to use the restroom. Mm. So hardly anybody raises their hand. Or I'll ask the opposite and we'll have everyone raise their hand, right? 
I'm like, if you were a trans or non-binary person, more than likely you would not be raising your hand. More than likely you would be um, concerned about it. And I even talk about how students will talk about their, their monitoring. I'm holding up a water bottle right now. Um, those in the audience can't, can't see it. But they're concerned about their water intake dependent on where they have a safe, accessible place to relieve themselves. And if there's not one, they might then be dehydrating themselves. So there are physical health ramifications on top of the mental health and psychological safety ramifications. So just using the restroom or the locker room that matches how you identify. So that's that's a very common one. And I, I always bring it up because that's a necessity. Right? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about a privilege or, or a special accommodation. We all need and deserve spaces where we feel safe and secure and comfortable to do the basic the basics of relieving needs. I want to also mention a some common BIPOC, uh, what my, my Black Indigenous uh, students of color experience, because it, it really mirrors um, what Lori was talking about with uh, taking the notes and great idea, Mark, was that the name? Or Greg, whatever the name is, just yeah. one, one <laughs> of those masculine names you can throw in there. So one, two of the most common experiences for BIPOC students in classrooms is either the experience of being racially spotlighted. And so that's mm-hmm. the instance where somebody is asked to be the representative for their entire group. So if you're a woman, mm-hmm. Tell us the experience of women. If you're a Black person, tell us the experience of Black folks if you're Latinx, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? Now, while that might serve to include somebody, it's not including the unique perspective of that student. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's kind of washing them away into the entire group that they belong to, which really washes away their experience. So it's not really a belonging um, uh, concept or um, effect that's going to be incurred by, by that interaction. The counter is the racial ignoring. Right. And we have gender ignoring as well. And that's exactly what you were talking about, Lori, when so I make a comment in class, it's dismissed. Um, a white student makes the same comment. It's like, great idea, Greg. Right. And mm-hmm. and that's extremely infuriating because it dismisses my intellect. But it also just shows how much or the lack of care thereof that that the faculty and the rest of the class has for for that student or those students. So very common experiences for students. And I find that the, the way the nature of microaggressions kind of remain the same. They just kind of have little tweaks depending on our developmental trajectory and the context that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've worked in the last few years, I've, I've worked with a, a number of faculty at different universities. So not, you know, scapegoating any one particular school or school's <laughs> faculty. But one of the hardest things for them to understand that I have found people who are struggling with this idea around how to manage diverse classrooms is to not spotlight students of color or whoever's in the minority, because that seems like the right answer. It seems like, well, they have all this knowledge around Black people. I should just call on them. And so I've spent a lot of time, you know, using evidence and convincing faculty that it's, it's not the right answer. It's absolutely not the right answer. So as opposed to that, David, <laughs> what are some of the right answers? So we've spent our time together, I think, in a very um, engaged and very general thoughtful discussion around what these things are, you know, stepping back in the abstract, who they affect, how prevalent they are, and some everyday examples of how they show up for, for different for people from different historically marginalized or oppressed groups. Now is the question of, of, of what can be done. And, and I want to think about this in terms of different levels of analysis. There's like you as the person who just experienced the thing, you as the person who did the thing, and maybe you're being confronted on it. Um, but we've got bystanders, people who are observing, and then we've got 
institutions and leaders. So I'm going to allow you to pick whichever groups of people you want to focus on, but I just want to understand um, what might be some tips you would offer, starting with you, David, for for how we might begin to, uh, I don't know if the right word is eliminate, mitigate the effects of, but make the workplaces and education places less bad, if you will, for people from um, historically marginalized groups. I have lots of tips. I'm actually going to share something that has been standardized a bit by my mentor and his current um, uh, students, but -hmm. I'll share what I do. I engage with microaggressions and I'm the first one to call myself out or in, however I'm kind of uh, dealing with myself at that time. But I, I, I like to do that purposefully as modeling that even a, a microaggressive expert is going to microaggress because I'm a product of the same society. So I am inevitably going to have oppression leak out of me, right? It's not something that we can completely eliminate. Again, I'll go back until the systems are changed, right? They need to be dismantled and changed and they have not been dismantled or changed yet. Mm-hmm. Some individual organizations are doing some things like that, but the entire systems that those organizations belong to are still very well intact and, and flooded with oppression, right? And so unless those change, microaggressions are going to continue to, to dominate our spaces. So I, I I encourage people to, when they engage in one, that's why it's important to understand what one is, how to identify it, especially when you're the one that is enacting it. And, and you listen to how I use the word enact. Sometimes mm-hmm. I would use per- perpetrate, but enact, because again, mm-hmm. we were socialized to act this way. So we're really enacting um, the oppressor's work, right? And mm-hmm. probably oppressors that haven't even been alive for a long time, we're still enacting their work uh, mm-hmm. through these microaggressions. So when I communicate one, immediately I, I'm like, that's a microaggression. And I just literally say that. I'll stop mm-hmm. and say, like, that was a microaggression. I'm like, mm-hmm. you probably caught that, right? And they're like, yep, I caught that. And sometimes that's all you need to do, depending on the context, is just acknowledge that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, if I have the ability that I'm going to check in and be like, how did that impact you, right? I'll apologize, but I'm not going to stop with an apology. I want to have a conversation. How did that impact you? Mm-hmm. What did I do or say that created that? Maybe I don't even know. Maybe I just see someone's expression. Maybe they're their, uh, their brow gets furrowed or they have like a grimace on their face. There's mm-hmm. an indication. Our nonverbals speak a lot. So let's identify those nonverbals. And we can even use our nonverbals to communicate when we don't have the words. Right. right. So uh, very briefly, I want to share a, a four-step model for addressing them um, mm-hmm. as anybody, as the person receiving them, as a vicarious participant, um, or as the one who is the enactor. And so um, Daryl and his, his research team came up with the book, Microaggression Strategies. I'm mm-hmm. trying to sell it. I can even share a PDF that they were able to develop that is a, kind of a synopsis. Um, but they offer a four-step model, right? The first step is to basically make the invisible visible, right? And so acknowledge that the microaggression has been experienced. So if I'm the enactor, I'm like, that was a microaggression. If I'm observing, I might even say, I think I experienced a microaggression happening there, right? And so you can even be tentative, right, in your voice. I, I find that the qualities of our voices say much more than the actual words that were coming out of our mouths, mm-hmm. right? And so to, to make, be curious, right? And so respond with a sense of curiousness in your voice, that's going to have an impact on the other person to hopefully want to engage with that curiosity. The second step is to disarm the microaggression encounter by asking the person um, what they feel about it, right? Or conveying some kind of disagreement. And as I mentioned, you can use your nonverbals. You can cross your arms. You can just furl your brow, right? Do something to communicate disagreement. Sometimes we don't have the words yet, especially with a newer microaggression. Even I don't. And so I have to formulate ways of responding to various ones. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the third step is to educate the enactor. And often it's between intent and impact, 
Right. What we realize through experience is that having the intention conversation rarely leads to any place that's productive and where change is going to occur because we're never going to get inside someone's brain to understand the true intentions, right? And what was the road to hell paved with? Good intentions, right? The right. things around for a reason. Right. We care about the impact, right? We want to know what's the impact of this interaction. And then we can learn to grow from that impact. Do I want to continue to harm people or do I want to kind of take stock of what I'm doing and decide to do better? Right? And the final step, and this is a self-care thing, is that it takes a lot of effort to engage in these, whether you're the bystander, the person enacting it, or the one that's receiving it. And you need to go and seek out some support, possibly mm-hmm. some authoritative help, maybe a book or a trusted uh, mentor, someone mm-hmm. to process it with. So who in your in your circle do you trust mm-hmm. that you can go and relay this message to, to get validation, right? to get affirmation, and to help someone help you unload the, the, bear, the, the weight of the microaggression that you've experienced? That's so helpful. I wrote all of those down because I actually had not come across this piece of work. I'm excited yeah. to share this with my students. But I think even as a person who experiences these and, and does a lot of science myself and does podcasts, yes, micro intervention strategies. Okay, great. I need to make sure that I check that out. And certainly other people who are listening should check it out as well. I just thought that that was enormously helpful. Thank you, David. Yeah. Lori, what insights do you offer? And you think yeah. that it would be also great to hear from the perspective of, you know, David talks about systems of oppression and structures. Yeah. And like when we talk about organizations, we're not just talking about, yes, your boss needs to change and your coworkers need to change, yeah. but culture doesn't just mm-hmm. change because individuals change their everyday habits because we create wide-scale, large-scale practices. So can you also mm-hmm. help us understand what can be done from a, more organizational standpoint as well. Yeah, it, it's just interesting. I loved I loved the framework that David laid out. Again, I wish I'd known that before I wrote the book. It would have given us a different structure. We talk a lot about culture and culture conversations and I think organizations right now spend a lot of time on culture. And, you know, I joke, they spend a lot of time on the cold brew and the beer pong and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. And what they don't, I think what organizations miss, and I see it in my board work and in my coaching, is all those things you do that you think are positively impacting culture. Every time one of these little micro moments happen, they just like eat away at it. And so all the money that you're spending on Bagel Tuesday and all that kind of stuff is the reality of it is when somebody is talked over in a meeting or they're told they're too emotional or whatever, those things just you know, they just wash away all, it's like a sandcastle, like you're building this up and then it just sort of, it can go away so quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a big believer in, you know, part of the first step is always awareness at all levels, right? And then being open to, you know, people, I hate this expression, but I'll use it as sort of speaking truths to power. And Mm -hmm. so when David talked about sort of like labeling it, and I love the make the invisible visible, you have a choice as a leader. And I say a leader, I don't say a man, I say a man, woman, Mm -hmm. any gender as a leader, when Mm -hmm. somebody brings something up to you, how you react to that, if you say, say more about that and you invite them to tell you more and how did that make you feel? Mm -hmm. That's one approach versus another approach is you kind of cross your arms and you're like, I didn't mean it that way. I don't know what you're talking about, right? So the whole thing about people often say, speak truth to power. And then as soon as somebody tries to do it, they go flat and Mm -hmm. they just sort of, they put them back down. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I would say to 
is just the framework that I like to use as a complement to David's framework is every person who is in, again, I'll use the workplace because that's kind of our milieu, if you will, is whether you're the person experiencing it, what can you say or do? If you're a bystander, I love the um, expression somebody gave us, which is how do you go from being a bystander to an upstander Mm -hmm. or a bystander to an ally? You have a choice to make. If you are in the room and somebody says, oh, I don't think Janine could take that new role because it would require a move to London and her husband runs a hedge fund in New York. She would never be able to do it. I don't care what level you're at. If you are in the room where that happens, you have a choice to say nothing or say, wait, excuse me, can we unpack that a little bit, right? And then talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as the boss, and the boss can be any gender. This is not exclusive to any one gender. But when you see that happening as a boss, you have to pay attention to the dynamics in the room. And so if everyone is spending the first 15 minutes of a Monday morning staff meeting talking about football, and you notice that four people are really engaged in the conversation, a bunch of women are like looking down, catching up at their emails on their phone. It's your job as the boss, as much as you might have watched the football and you want to talk about it, to sort of pay attention to the dynamics Mm -hmm. and pay attention to is everyone engaged. And I would say a learning for me, just to finish this, is it's easy to call other people out. And then when you have that moment, I always say, if you're breathing, you have bias, right? I mean, David said, it's the systems we grew up in. And you know what? We'll get smart about some things and then we'll have new biases around other things. And so I think you have to be on this kind of constant learning journey. And the moment for me is, again, we have a chapter in the book that's about, it's called at the table, not in the conversation about this notion of, everyone's talking about football and you, you can't, you know, you don't follow the Philadelphia Eagles. So you have nothing to say, but the reality of it is like edit, cut, edit, pace, Philadelphia Eagles substitute that with game of Thrones Mm -hmm. or any other TV show, whatever the reality of it is without realizing it, the more senior you get, when you talk about things, people pretend to be interested in <laughs> and my quick story, I once brought my daughter to an event. I worked at Keurig. We were sponsoring a Kelly Clarkson concert. Anyway, I brought her to the event. It was relatively new. And she said to me, like, afterwards, we're walking back to our hotel. And she goes, Mom, your team laughs at everything you say. And I'm like, well, you know, kind of funny, Sammy. And she said, <laughs> great face. She goes, you're not that funny. <laughs> and this was, I mean, seven years ago. And it was that moment I realized, oh no, I, you know, as executive vice president, like, oh no, I'm one of those people. I think I'm interesting. You know, if I'm talking about whatever show it is, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm, whatever, everyone pretends they're interested in and they're not because I'm senior. So the uh-huh. equivalent where I might've made fun of my boss or my colleagues about the Philadelphia Eagles, I have to be careful as a C-suite executive, as a board director, that when I'm talking about succession or whatever it is on a Monday morning, I need to pay attention. And if I'm not including everybody in the pre-meeting chit chat, mm-hmm. I need to probably find a way of being a little bit more inclusive. 
So let me, um, you know, bring us to a close here by just giving you each a chance just to give us your your final thoughts on this topic, not final forever, but certainly for now. What would you like to leave us thinking about? Lori, we'll go back to you and then David will end with you. Yeah, I think the, I would just reiterate this notion of inviting people to have a conversation. And I think a safe way to do it and maybe this is my coaching training, is talk to your team about, hey, let's talk about what are the things that we do that drive culture? What are the things that we're doing that make you feel included and you know all of that and, and that you belong and what makes you want to work here? And you know, put the list up of the good stuff mm-hmm. and then talk about, hey, let's talk about some of the, they could be big or little. What are some of the small things or big things that we do that might be taking away from that? And what I would say, you know, people say, don't sweat the small stuff. I would say, sweat the small stuff, Mm -hmm. honor the small stuff. Don't just look for like the big insightful things that could go in a PowerPoint slide. Think Mm -hmm. about what are listened to because they're, they're there. You don't have to work very hard to find out what they are, but listen to understand what are some of the things that you're doing that are eating away at the positive culture that you're trying to build. Thank you so much, Lori. So thoughtful and so helpful. David, what are your final thoughts for us? I want to repeat what Lori said. Listen to understand. Most people listen to respond. If you're already formulating a response while the other person's still talking, you're not fully hearing what they're saying. So I train therapists how to do therapy. And that's one of the first mindset shifts is you need to be starting to listen to to understand. Mm -hmm. The response will come at some later date. Like we Mm -hmm. we're already programmed in the society to have quick, fast, rapid conversation where we're probably missing each other's main points most of the time. Um, But uh, Going back to this, one term we haven't spoken about, but that is really related to the concept um, of microaggressions are macroaggressions. Mm-hmm. And um, in our book, um, we defined macroaggressions as those institutional and systemic practices and procedures that insult and invalidate entire groups of people, right? So it could be one policy that attacks a whole group of people, right? Mm-hmm. Thankfully, many institutions are doing these um, equity audits on their policies, on their procedures. So that's a great first step. Um, But I have yet to work or advise an institution that doesn't have oppressive values embedded in their policies and procedures at some point. What I'm even more concerned about, and we've been talking about them, but we haven't called them this, are what I recommend is that leaders identify any and all of the unwritten standard operating procedures, those Mm -hmm. SOPs. Mm -hmm. There is bias embedded in those like no other. There's a reason they're unwritten. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're finding is that a lot of the oppressions live in the standard operating procedures, yes. right? What is the procedure for note-taking, right? Mm-hmm. In my faculty, in my meetings, we're all PhD faculty. We don't have an administrative assistant that sits in on our meetings. And so we have a rotation, right? And that's purposely embedded so that we don't have to think about, okay, who's next or, or, or I'm going to call on so-and-so to take the notes, right? And so really um, standardizing these procedures and looking for the inequities that are inevitably involved in them. Thank you so much. Such a rich, I think, set of closing comments, dot, 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 to be continued conversation around macroaggressions. At one point, it did enter my headspace that, you know, sometimes we have to understand that what we call microaggressions are actually experienced as macro to this point that we've been trying to make around the power of these micro moments. Mm -hmm. But I would like to certainly thank you both, Lori and David, for for being here, for sharing your insights and your expertise with us today. 
it certainly goes without saying, you know, the power of like science, but also the power of expertise in other forms from being like a, a seasoned executive, I think makes these conversations very rich and necessary. And so I fully enjoyed the combination of the two of you in your respective expertise and helping to enrich our understanding. And, and I think also our toolkit around how to manage these uh, micro moments, microaggressions, racial fumbles, whatever we choose to call them. And I also want to thank our audience for joining us and for listening to this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.